0: Hello, this is Fight Back, a podcast by the Healthcare Consumer Rights Foundation. My name is Jamie Rosales, and I am one of the producers here at Fight Back. Our nonprofit's mission is to help you navigate the complex healthcare system and understand your legal rights, options, and opportunities when you encounter problems and obstacles. We want to empower you with the information you need to fight back and get the best possible care. We have a special episode today. We look back at some of our most popular Fight Back episodes of 2022. As we've all returned to a new normal, we know that getting the best you can out of your healthcare is constant, and Fight Back is helping each of us achieve our greatest health. Let's get started. One of our episodes that resonated with our listeners was our podcast on long COVID. In this episode, Dr. Aris Mattis, a research specialist from University of California, San Francisco, joined us to discuss the far-reaching impact of those suffering with long COVID or the ongoing and long-term health impacts that continue for patients. Let's take a listen as he shares some of the ongoing research and knowledge surrounding long COVID.
1: Well, uh, so long COVID has several different names, uh, including it's been called chronic COVID-19 or post-COVID-19 syndrome, uh, the most basic definition could be that it's symptoms that seem to persist long after the viral infection has sort of passed. Um, some, some clinicians use the the time period sort of extending 12 weeks after infection or some people say beyond 60 days. I guess it, it doesn't really matter what time frame you use, as long as it's sort of after the virus has sort of done its thing. Um, And I'd, I'd like to say that while there's like numerous symptoms have been reported, the most common symptoms include chronic cough, shortness of breath, chest tightness, brain fog is a big one, and then a lot of people talk about extreme fatigue. And sometimes people say that, you know, there's a lack of smell or taste or, you know, in addition to one of these characteristics. I think that long-term COVID is actually quite unique. Certainly, uh, you know, certainly there's other viruses that that can cause these sort of long long-term effects. You know, and you know, like having uh, CMV or, or or some other uh, viral virally sort of related uh, infections. They they can cause some long long-term, but but COVID-19 is, is unique in that it, it, it hits so many different people, so many different age groups, and it just, you know, as in terms of long COVID, it, it doesn't seem to necessarily get better for the patients suffering from long-term COVID.
2: So if unfortunately, you know, if you have come down with long-term COVID, you know, what can be done to help those folks?
1: Yeah, that, that's actually an, an important question and and i would you know i would strongly encourage anyone with severe long term covid symptoms to go see their their physician and and the reason for that is because you know something you know something could be getting worse in the body and it may be related to covid but it might not be related to covid or po- or long covid symptoms and so we have to be very careful you know if someone is has severe symptoms of any type that they should you know, seek clinical care, you know, don't, don't believe that just because, oh, I had COVID and I got over it and this is just long COVID, that that's all it is. You know, if, you know, if your kidney function is decreasing or you're, you can't control your diabetes, then, you know, it's, it's time to seek clinical care. So I think, you know, that's, that's an important message for, for people out there.
2: Is it possible to have long-term COVID, but not know it? You mean that it, it, it is it, possible that it's doing some damage but maybe the person doesn't realize it
1: that that's another uh that's another interesting biologic take that perhaps people that there's sort of lingering chronic what we would call chronic inflammation in, in patients with long covid but or or maybe they've created antibodies that are creating small clots so maybe that is happening and, and you know it could be undetectable but you know, hopefully, you know, you if there was a problem that was occurring, it would it might be detected on a sort of yearly screen in the patient. But I, I don't think we've developed, you know, ideal or great screens yet for patients, you know, with long term COVID. Like I wish there was a blood
0: test for it even. We all love our pets. Every shape, size, color, and type they come in. Here at Fight Back, we had a chance to talk with canine companions to learn more about how man's best friend not only serves as a best friend, but also as a service animal, helping identify a possible medical crisis, turning on lights, and even interrupting dreams for those diagnosed with PTSD. Join me as we learn more from Michelle Williams with Canine Companions.
2: What is the, uh, the difference between a, you know a service dog versus a therapy dog versus an emotional support dog?
3: Sure, yeah, um, that's great. I think it's it's really important for people to understand the differences there. Um, a an emotional support dog is a pet that is going to provide emotional support to someone. Um, they just have public access and housing. So they're not able to go out in public um, with their handler um, unless it's a place where um, pet dogs are allowed. Um, So that is an emotional support animal. Um, A therapy dog is a a wonderful pet that has been given permission to provide, you know, love and comfort in a facility. So they don't have public access anywhere else, um, but that facility that they've been allowed to go and their main role is to provide love and comfort fruit. Um, And then service animals, uh, like canine Companion service dogs, uh, do practical tasks for people with disabilities to really enhance their independence. So, uh, for example, our dogs uh, pick up dropped items, turn on and off lights, open and close doors. Um, Some of them even pull someone in a manual wheelchair. Uh, So those are some idea of some of the practical tasks. Um, Also, you know, for people who are deaf or hard of hearing, our dogs alert them to important sounds in their environment. Um, for veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder, they can interrupt anxiety behavior and interrupt nightmares, um, as well as provide, you know, additional space in, in public. Um, so some really important, uh, important tasks that these dogs will do. That's what really separates them. And then of course service animals, service dogs like canine companion service dogs have public access anywhere where the public can be. Um, our handlers with disabilities with their service dogs are able to go.
2: This this access to public facilities, you know, grocery stores and restaurants and such, is is this this is a national federal law or is it a state law or both?
3: Uh, That's right. Uh, It's a federal law under the Americans with Disabilities Act. And um, there are different laws kind of, um, you know, we there are laws passed all the time kind of uh, differentiating um, service dogs from therapy dogs or from emotional support dogs. And that's something that Canine Companions definitely supports. Um, What... Sometimes there are fraudulent service dogs, um, what we call fraudulent service dogs, animals that are brought into public that aren't properly trained. And it really makes it difficult uh, for people who really need service dogs and rely on them every day uh, to, to be in public with them. So, um, yeah, it is a federal law and we hope people will, you know, abide by that.
0: One of the most difficult things when you are dealing with medical issues are the bills that come after your treatment. Bills that seem high-priced and difficult to understand. Do we have any options? Dr. Ted Mazur joined us on a podcast to discuss how to make your medical bills fit into your budget. This includes the idea of shopping around and how to avoid those surprise bills. Let's listen in.
2: It still makes sense, I assume, for people to think about shopping around, you know, because of the co- co-pays and the deductibles. I mean, for example, an MRI, uh, I, I know of one situation where, you know, an MRI at a hospital costs X dollars uh, and, and across the street at, at a, you know, imaging center, same equipment, same radiologist, and it costs, mm-hmm. you know, half the price. So d- d- do you recommend shopping around? Yes,
4: absolutely. When you can talk to your physician, talk to the staff, and say, where in my network can I go to get quality, but at a better price? And I'll give you a great example. For years, we would do a lot of CTs of the the sinuses. They should never be done with an outpatient at a hospital because the hospital is far more expensive. You're paying for bricks and mortar that you don't really need for a scan. I could actually get a scan of the sinuses done for cash, for $300 with interpretation, if you did that through your insurance, the charges would be someplace on the order of $800 to 1000 And if you did it at a hospital, it could be $1,800 to $2,000 under contract. And if you have a copayment, that's a percentage, you're going to pay a great deal more. Absolutely talk to the provider, whoever that is or their staff, when you're ordering studies, find out where you can get what they consider a quality study at a better price within the network so it's covered.
2: I wanted to also ask you about second opinions, uh, Dr. Mazur. Do you recommend that in the spirit of buyer beware and patients need to take care of their own medical situation at the end of the day, do you recommend that patients should should boldly ask for second opinions on any kind of serious procedure that might be prescribed?
4: Absolutely, 100%. Unless you already understand how how things are and you believe that what the first physician is telling you is the right thing to do, never hesitate to ask for a second opinion. Here's been my motto. A patient says, you know, doc, I want to get a second opinion. I say, go for it. Get back to me. Call me with any questions. Do not feel embarrassed for asking for a second opinion. You need to be assured that what I'm recommending is what is reasonable and what you want. And maybe somebody has a different idea. Um, And then you get back into the second opinion in-network, out-of-network kind of stuff, which we could talk about. But um, you should never hesitate. If you're uncertain when the doctor says, I need you to do this, get a second opinion. Ask your primary care physician or ask the specialist. Who would you go to for another opinion? And don't go to somebody in the same practice.
2: Find somebody yeah. else same specialty, but not in the same practice. Right. And does your insurance usually cover the cost of a second opinion? So that's a great question.
4: Yes, if it's a simple second opinion, you run into more problems when the second opinion wants to repeat studies and they're going to say, well, you just had this study done three months ago by Dr. Smith and now Dr. X wants you to do it again. That's a problem. In terms of just getting into another physician's office, generally second opinions aren't an issue. It can become an issue if you have a very, very narrow, uh, narrow network and you have something very unique because there may only be one practice in that network, particularly in HMO, um, that has what you need as a service. But at least in California, and I'm sure elsewhere in the country, there are laws that say if the plan can't give you a second opinion in-network. It must pay for a second opinion out of network. And I can remember sitting across the table from health plans 25 years ago and demanding that that be part of the law. Uh, You you need to be able to be assured that you are comfortable moving forward with a, a major medical intervention, and second opinions play a key role in that.
0: Finally, let's listen in today to one of our most impactful episodes last year, our conversation with Dr. Brad Pollack regarding childhood and youth cancers. Dr. Pollack joins us to discuss the advancements in treatment and medical care, along with some of the significant strides made surrounding research for new and effective treatments.
2: Is the standard state-of-the-art treatment these days, is it still some combination of radiation and chemotherapy? Or is there some advances in other types of treatments that aren't that, that don't have so many side effects?
5: Yeah, that's a great question. And actually, the answer is, it depends on what kind of cancer that, that a kid develops, and that's so important. That's even true on the adult side as well. So some of the cancers that we have uh, see that have some of the leukemias, for example. Uh, thirty years ago we were routinely giving those kids chemotherapy and radiation therapy. We were irradiating their uh, cranial their cranial spinal column uh, to because that was a site where you saw a lot of relapses for leukemia and so we we would prophylactically irradiate them and we found out you know thirty some odd years ago that we really didn't have to do that we could you could actually do some adjustment of the chemo regimen to uh, eliminate the need for radiation. And so the downstream effect of that is that if you don't have to radiate kids, it, believe it or not, you, you take a young kid with leukemia and radiate them, you can have um, a significant cognitive decline. Their cognitive abilities going forward can be diminished greatly. So we figured out how to eliminate that. So a lot of the therapy, well, originally we would do things, of course, it may be a sur- surgery, May be the primary therapy they get up front, if they have a uh, cancer of a specific organ that can be resected. Um, But then you move to the other lines, which is uh, chemotherapy and radiation. And I think some of the big shifts have been not only eliminating the toxicity of the therapy we give the kids, in other words, don't throw the kitchen sink at them if they don't need it, but it's also that we've got a a new set of uh, drugs, not even drugs, but we have what we call biological agents. So these are um, uh, manufactured to do things like monoclonal antibodies and things like that, which really more directly target the cancer rather than just giving, you know, people poison as we did for some of the original chemotherapeutic agents. Now we're doing much more targeted therapy. So in, in many cases, the, uh, the these new biologic products are more effective. They actually eliminate the cancer more efficiently and they do it with less toxicity. So we're, we've worked on a wide range of these in cancer in general, not just for kids, but in cancer therapy. And the other thing that's uh, really happened, I think, over time is along with those, those targeted agents, just understanding a lot more about the biology of any particular cancer that develops, you know, they're all a little bit different. And I think a lot of people just think, well, cancer is cancer. But no, cancer is a collection of completely different diseases. Um, and so if you have uh, somebody who develops leukemia, that is a completely different uh, disease than a brain tumor. We call them both cancer, but they're completely different in terms of the biology, in terms of the prognosis, in terms of the long-term effects of therapy, uh, even the cure rates. So a lot has gone into perfecting our our toolkit to try to treat cancers in general. And uh, the other thing I'll just say is that kids are much more resilient than adults are. Um, And when we treat kids with cancer, uh, they typically will get higher doses because uh, they get less drug because they're smaller bodies but if you look at the dose l- levels relative to their to their body size they're actually getting sometimes h- much higher doses of chemotherapy than adults do that may be one of the reasons why they have better outcomes they have higher survival rates because mm. we treat them at a higher level but they're also able yeah they're able to tolerate that high level therapy more than adults do so that is another advantage for younger kids. They can get the, the more aggressive therapy, which usually results in higher cure rates than adults do. And in fact, if you have an 80-year-old, you know, somebody develops a little toxicity, you're going to back off immediately in, in how aggressive you are because you get scared. But with, with childhood cancer, we tend to really push it all the way
0: want to thank you for listening to today's Fight Back podcast. Our mission is to provide you with the healthcare resources and information in a refreshing and interesting format. For more information, please visit our website, healthcareconsumerrights.org. While on our website, you can check out additional podcasts and full-length episodes of the podcasts we heard today, or access more information and resources to help you navigate this healthcare system and get the care you deserve. We also welcome your input and stories that we can use on future podcasts. This is Jamie Rosales, and this is Fight Back, a podcast by the Healthcare Consumer Rights Foundation. Thanks for listening. I look forward to our next podcast. Talk with you soon.